You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. God made them male and female. And as we introduce this subject, we'd like to point out that it's not just some general idea that we have, it's based upon the Bible itself. And uh, if we look at evidence to establish whether a document is uh, true or not, then we apply the principles of examining evidence so that beyond all reasonable doubt, we may come to a conclusion that this is right or this is wrong, whatever the issue is that we're searching out. And there's four fundamental principles upon which evidence is allowed in legal uh, circles, for example, and I've got them listed there. And uh, as we apply those principles to the Bible, there's not a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is, beyond all doubt, the inspired word of God. The evidence to sustain that is quite remarkable, but sadly, I don't think many people really look for the evidence today. They just either accept there's a Bible or accept their religion that they were brought up in. But we're going to tonight examine the Bible very carefully on a particular subject. You see, when you come to looking at the subject, and we're going to look at the way God created men and women, we find in the world that there's different people. I've met these, and I guess some of you who have been looking into religion have found this before. There's the agnostic. It's a Greek word which means no knowledge. And in fact, the Bible does have that word in it. It was a time when the Apostle Paul was in the city of Athens, and uh, the Parthenon, as you know, is behind uh, on the Acropolis in Athens where they worshipped all these different gods, but there was one god called the unknown god. The word for unknown uh, in that is uh, agnostic. It's a god they didn't know, but they were worshipping an unknown god as well as the gods that they thought they knew, but they were all, of course, uh, fictitious gods invented by man's philosophy. The other word is atheist, people that say, look, there is no god, so why should I worry about the Bible? Well, Actually, that word occurs in the Bible also when it's speaking about the people that Paul was preaching to about God. He says, before you knew this, you were without any hope and you were atheists. Uh, you had no God. And so that's what that word means. So we're breaking up society into different groups. There's the people that say there's no knowledge. We claim there is knowledge and we'll look at that. There's those that say there is no God, so they just absolutely write that off. Then, of course, there's paganism. As you look around the world, different, uh, really, different countries have established their own religion, and so it's generally called paganism. It's worshipping like the Hindus worship their uh, gods. There's the Buddhism, there's Shintoism, and so we could go on, where people have invented gods. They're man-made gods in, coming out of the uh, superstition of man, or the philosophy of man. And uh, they've come up with these different gods. For example, Plato, 400 years before Jesus, came up with the idea of a trinity of gods. And that was finally accepted and drawn into Christianity about 300 years after the time of Christ. Then, of course, there's Christianity. And you look at all these different varieties of Christianity. It's like going into a shop with lots of ice creams and you've got to pick which one you want. And that tends to be the way it is. People are either brought up in the religion they had and they accept it or they join the church that seems to suit their, uh, their particular needs or needs they think they have. But as you look at modern Christianity today, it's actually a, a confusion of speculated ideas. People have come up with their ideas about what God requires. 
what God's purpose is, what God is teaching, but it's really a mixture of Bible quotes, human philosophy and pagan superstition. And I know that seems rather bold, but you've got to say to yourself, well, how come there's so many different Christian religions in the world? There's obviously no sound basis for any of them. They've all varied in their understanding of what they think the Bible teaches or God requires. And of course, we then come to the absolute definitive answer to find out what about the Bible and God, and that is to get the facts, the actual facts that we can base evidence upon, as I said earlier, that evidence that can show us what is the Bible really the word of God, is there a God? And that evidence can be summarised this way, uh, and it's, it's the prophecies in the Bible. Prophecy proves without any doubt that the Bible is inspired by a creator, a being that can tell the future. And uh, so this quotation in Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. That's a claim, but is it true? We all can make claims about things. The fact is, is the claim true? But then God gives us the basis of testing the claim, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I'll do all my pleasure. And here's something you and I can test. It's, you don't need to be a Rhodes Scholar to work this out. The Bible says this is going to happen in the future. It's just a matter of then looking at history to see if that event that was foretold was fulfilled in history. It's humanly impossible to tell the future. Humanly impossible. But God claims to be able to tell the future and God says, look, just test me. And so you can spend time doing that and it's a very, very profitable, very enjoyable and a very confirming task which establishes beyond all reasonable doubt that the Bible is God's inspired word. So fulfilled prophecy is like the signature of God upon the Bible. It's just so absolute. And I remember when I was a young man and this, I looked into this and it was just so uh, comforting to say, I now know that the Bible is the word of God. God has written the Bible to tell me what his purpose is, what he wants of people if they want to follow his ways. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. What does God require? Now, I'd just like to say something which I think is fairly important. People can develop a conscience on the Bible which may be different to the general conscience of the people around them. For example, I'll give an example of this, and our Australian government accepts this, that uh, Jesus said, I say unto you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you're going to apply that, if the Australian government goes to war with a country and that's the enemy, you've got a problem. The Bible, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who despite persecute you. And in John chapter 18, Jesus answered his disciples who had got up a sword, got out a sword to protect him. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? And so in other words, Jesus says, I don't want my disciples or followers of me fighting my kingdoms of the world to come, the age to come. It's not now. And so people on a, who read these quotes, there's a number of people who will say, look, 
My conscience is I cannot fight in uh, military activity. In fact, Russia, that's just called up 300,000 people, uh, it also has a law for conscientious objection in Russia. And so many countries have said, hey, but we understand some people reading their Bible see certain things that, upon which they develop a conscience. And uh, anybody that reads the Bible and then starts to believe in God and comes to a conviction that God exists will take his word seriously and develop a conscience based upon that. Well, that's just an introduction to the subject tonight about God created male and female. So let's go back right to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Many people know this verse because it's the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So God had a purpose, and that purpose is revealed and summarized in this quote in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. So it's talking about this God that created and made the heavens and the earth. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So God made that statement. I created this earth with a purpose, and that is to have it inhabited by people. And so we realise that when God fashioned the earth so that life could live upon it, he did so with a, an aim. He wasn't just developing a botanical gardens with a multitude of different types of trees or a, a zoo with all the different animals. That wasn't his aim. That's part of developing the platform in which he was going to place man and uh, woman. He created the earth to be inhabited. And so that would require the creation of individuals. And so in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 of Genesis, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So on the sixth day of a sequence of events that were taking place to establish the earth in a place that, as a place that man could live in, on the sixth day, God got to the state where he could place man upon the earth. And he said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God had created the earth to be inhabited and here are the inhabitants being made. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. There was a plan, and man that was being created by God was going to be created in the image of God and in the likeness of God. And as I've got there in the reflection on that, what God was doing, he was creating man and man had the mental ability to understand God's purpose and God's moral qualities. And so man was able to understand this God that had created him and the purpose he'd created him. So he was responsible for his actions. Animals aren't like that. Bibles weren't written for animals. They can't understand. They haven't got that moral concept. But God created man in his likeness that he could understand God's purpose and develop a character like the God that had formed him. God has given and has preserved his word, the Bible, so that we can sit down and read what God's purpose is, what his character is, what his plan is in all things, and why he created man and the future that God had for him. So this is very, very important. It's the fundamental understanding of our forefathers, or uh, 
four parents who God created, and he created with this purpose, to have dominion. He goes on to say in those verses, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So God made a male and a female. And I'm just using those little characters there, obviously, they're kind of just sketch drawings, and I thought we'd put them there to understand what we're talking about. Male and female were created at the beginning of God's work, which we had, he, he had planned with having the earth inhabited. God went on to say to them, now verse 28, God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So the purpose was to have the earth inhabited meant that there need to be a procreation of people on the earth. So God's plan in creation was to involve re reproduction and a natural human reproduction is based upon a male and a female. So God created a male and a female and he said, I want you to multiply, be fruitful. And so that was the plan of God in creation. And we know that he made the man first and then subsequent to that, he made the woman. And this is the way the woman was made. So it says this in verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So the man was made first. And then God was going to make the woman. But he made her different to the way he made the man. The man was made out of the dust of the ground, Genesis 2 verse 7. And God breathed into that form that he made, the breath of life, and man became a living being. And from that one man, God says, I'm now going to make a companion for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought him to her. So it's quite a simple outline of what took place in Genesis chapter 2 as God formed the woman out of the man. And so now we have the man and a woman. And so the woman was brought to the man and Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And you can see the word woman has got the word man in it. W-O, man, M-A-N. It means out of man. If we were reading the Hebrew of this, it would be ish and isha. Ish for man, isha for out of man. So there's the correlation that God had made from the man, the woman, to be his companion, to be uh, for the purpose of this reproduction and filling the earth as God had planned it. Let's just read this a little closer as we go on. Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He realized that the woman had been made out of him. He was made from the dust of the ground. She was made out of him by the power of God. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So we have this quite clear distinction, the man and the woman. And God had said, I'm going to create a male and a female that they might multiply and fill the earth. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So God is saying the man united with the woman is considered one. They're a unit. It's 
mathematically uh, what we didn't learn at primary school, is it? One plus one normally equals two. But here God says, they shall be joined together and they shall be one flesh. So the one man and the one woman are united together as a unit. Because God had said, I have created a man and a woman to be fruitful and replenish the earth. So the purpose was God, in God was family life based upon uh, his plan in this work of uh, filling the earth. So what we realise is God created man and woman, but the problem was sin came into the world. If you remember your Bible stories, if you've heard them before, God gave Adam a law, lie, a law. You shall not eat of that particular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God gave a law, and that law was also passed to his wife that had been created, and the two of them knew that they were not to eat of that tree. But if you read through the story, Eve ate of the tree, gave it to Adam to eat, and so they both ate of it, and they transgressed God's law. God had said, if you eat of that fruit, you will die. So God is pointing out very clearly, I have created you to develop my way of thinking and to respect and love me, and I've created you in all this beautiful environment that you might replenish the earth and be fruitful multiplying as a families in the earth. But the first parents disobeyed God. In other words, they sinned. The word sin is transgressing of God's law or lawlessness. Here's a quotation from John chapter 1, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is saying, I won't abide by the law, I'll do what I like. It's, for example, if you've got an appointment and you're driving your car, a dentist appointment, well, you wouldn't hurry so much for that, but uh, going out for a meal with somebody, and you realise you're late, you've got an option of either abiding by the law or saying, I will do what I like. Now, the law is there to protect everybody, and you're saying, but I will do what I like, so you're going to do a lawless action. That's why people get arrested for speeding in their cars or get tickets and fines. So we've got to understand seriously what sin is. Sin is saying, I will not do what God wants. I will do what makes me happy. So when you bring it, look, when your child, if you say, please go and tidy your room and the child doesn't, it's really saying mum or dad, whoever asks, I am more important. I will do what I like. I don't respect you. Now, you have to bring your children to realise that they have to respect their parents and honour them. And so, sin is very serious. And here's God that's created this earth, and he created it to be inhabited, and he's created the first man and woman that they might multiply and have children. But now, Adam and Eve have said, we will do this our way. And God said, if you do that, you will die. I won't tolerate that because I've got a purpose with this earth and you've chosen to do your own thing. So, law, uh, what it is, is a person saying, God, I don't care what you say, I will do what I like. Now, this is very important. This is extremely important because it's something that has affected the world and many religions today 
Christian religions say God is just so kind, he'll forgive everything. It's not true. God is a God of love. He is a God of mercy and grace. But he's a righteous God, a holy God, and he is God. He's in, in charge. So we've got to understand that sin is selfishness. It's not godliness. And Adam and Eve said, we will do what we like. And uh, they were sentenced to die, and we as descendants of theirs have inherited that mortality that came by sin. But let's go on and follow the story through. 1656 years after Adam and Eve came what was known as the flood, the flood in the days of Noah. What was the reason for it? The sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were multiplying, but they were marrying. The sons of God were saying, we don't have to follow God's way. The sons of God are the descendants of uh, Seth, the descendants of those that had originally been trying to follow God's way and the descendants of Cain and his descendants, they said, we'll do what we like and they went away from God's way. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 4. So there's two groups in the earth. And what gradually happened was the ones that said, we're going to follow God, as they had children and their children and their children, after 1,600 years, God finally says, enough is enough. I've set out my principles, but there's only one man and his family that are still abiding by it. And that was Noah, who found grace in the eyes of God. So God is a gracious God. But he also destroyed all those. And God says, I'll bring a flood upon the waters, upon the, uh, of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. We just can't say God is a God of love. And look, if you just say, uh, oh, look, I'm sorry, I, yeah, I can do what I like. You can't do that. Uh, the whole population of the world was swept away because they'd left off God's way those that should have been the sons of God, as it were, following God's way, those that said, oh, look, really, we belong to a family that believe in God, they gradually let that slip. And they, as they gradually intermarried with people that didn't care about God, there was a declension in their beliefs, and finally it dissipated altogether. And so God swept them all away. God said, I did not create the earth to be dominated by people doing what they like. I created the earth with a purpose. About 400 years after that, in the days of Abraham, there was a city called Sodom. We read this in Genesis chapter 19, verse 12. Then the men said unto Lot, they were the angels of God sent there, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, he says to Lot. Bring those people out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And we know it's often spoken about, you know, it uses a, oh, look, this is destructions like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a group of cities on the plain near the Jordan River that were utterly destroyed because of their perversity, because they would not hearken to the ways of God. Look, this is how the New Testament summarises what Sodom was like. 
I've used tonight two versions of the Bible, the ESV and the King James Version. The King James has much older type language and sometimes younger people say, look, we, we can't understand what that word means because over the 400 years since it was translated, language has changed in its significance in the meaning. So here is the ESV translation. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You see, that's those people, and you read the Genesis account in Genesis 19, they became immoral in their sexual relationship, men with men. And that's what it's saying here. Sexual immorality, and it was unnatural. God created a man and a woman to procreate, to have children. And that was not what was happening in Sodom. So God blew it off the face of the earth. You know, it'd be no good, the men of Sodom saying, but you're a God of love. God is a God of love. If they, there was a man living in that city named Lot. He was a just man, and every day he hated what he saw in that city. It tells us this in 1 Peter. Look what Jesus says about it. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. That's verse 29. Verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And Jesus took that up, that incident, and he brings it right forward to our days and the days ahead when he is going to return to this earth. And he said, as it was in the days of Lot, uh, when that city of Sodom and Moreover were destroyed by God's judgment, so it'll be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So we're dealing with a subject which is not not irrelevant to the history we're looking at. So let us go on a bit further. At this time, we're looking at in the days of Sodom, God had called a man called Abraham who became the father of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel finally was brought out of Egypt and they were gathered at Mount Sinai about 1,500 years before the days of Jesus Christ. So God's now got a group of people. He says, right, this is the nation I'll work with. They're the descendants of Abraham, and I'm going to work through this nation. Selected them out of all the nations on the earth. God had scattered the nations, divided their languages, and now he selects this man, Abraham. And uh, he brought his descendants to Mount Sinai out of Egypt, and God gathered them there to make him, them a special people. So here's God selecting a people saying, look, there's the rest of the world. I will try and work through this group of people. Howbeit, if any in the rest of the world wanted to come and learn of God's ways, they could come down and associate with Israel. In chapter 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You see, the problem was Adam and Eve did not obey the voice of God, brought sin into the world. Now God's gathered this nation says, now look, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. The earth is God's, not ours. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel were called out for God to reveal his ways through them and for them to reveal God's ways as a holy nation so that people would look at that nation and say, that God of Israel is somebody I should find out about. 
Well, what happened was in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, the people of Israel said, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Israel said, yes, we are thankful you brought us out of Egypt. We are thankful you've gathered us together as a nation to be holy unto you. We will do what you ask. Well, Israel were then given the Ten Commandments, and some of you may remember that. The Ten Some of you may have learnt the Ten Commandments off at some stage. I'd just like to look at a couple of those commandments. There were ten of them. Let's look. Here's a few of them. God said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, Honour thy father and mother. You're going to honour father and mother, your children. Yeah? You're looking at your mother and father and you're going to honour them that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So it's talking about mum and dad and there's going to be little kids come down. Number four, 14, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You're one. You don't commit adultery with somebody else's wife or husband. Remember, God says, one man takes one woman and they're united together as one. So we notice, once again, God is highlighting these things, Ten Commandments, and we're just selecting a few of them out of it. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. So God is very imperative in this, isn't he? Get it, he's saying to Israel, get this clear. I've made males and females to marry and bring up their children in God's ways so that the children will honour father and mother who are showing that loving kindness and character that God has taught them through the word. By the way, if you say, well, look, that, that was back in Israel. Jesus Christ quotes it in Matthew chapter 5. I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, his heart is saying, I don't care what God says. I will do what I like. That's what adultery is. I won't do what God says. God says, don't do that. I'll do it. You see, God, God's laws are very clear and therefore the benefit of society he made a man and a woman to bring up their children in a godly way that psalm we read which we look at in a few minutes tonight was about married uh, life man wife and his children now with god with the nation of israel he looked at the world around and he had to make some guiding rules you don't want to be like those nations out there that don't know you, my ways a woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an abomination to the lord your god now it's talking about a man who wants to dress as a woman or a woman that wants to dress as a man to play out the role of a man or a woman which they're not it's crossing the line Cross-dressing was the aim of acting the part of the opposite sex. It wasn't like little children that dress up and play with mummy and daddy's clothes uh, and pretend that they're mummy and daddy and all the other people and that. It's talking about mature people saying, 
Why do I have to fulfil that role that God created for me? I will do what I like. That is lawlessness. God says that I won't tolerate that. It's an abomination. In Leviticus, he says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. This is absolute. You can sit down and try and rationalise it. You can't. God says, don't do it. I've told you that I created a male and a female to bring up children, and those children are to honour their mother and father. And so the laws of Israel were very distinct, very clear on these things. Because God says, I know what's happening out there. I've just destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That type of thing's happening out there. I've called out this nation and I'm going to instill in them my moral principles for which I created man and woman that they might inhabit the earth. So we go on. Let's go forward another 2,000 year, 2, years from the days of Israel. So we've come 4,000 years from the time of creation up to the time of Christ. And there was a question that the religious leaders asked Jesus. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Can you separate a man and his wife? By the way, I've heard it said that Oh, there's been changes in genes and people now are not as distinctly male and female. Well, here's 4,000 years have gone by and Jesus still sees them as males and females. He wasn't saying, oh, things have happened or there's been an evolution of mankind. So the question was, can you put away your wife? A man put his wife away. The answer was, he said unto them, have you not read? Don't you read the Bible? Now he's talking to the nation of Israel. He could not have spoken like that to the nations around about because they didn't have the Bible. He's talking to them and he says, haven't you read that he, God, which made them in the beginning, made them male and female? Don't you understand that God made them male and female? And he goes on, still quoting the Bible, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, they are one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's pretty sober, isn't it? We know there's marriage breakdown. We understand that in the world because often it's people don't know or are not following God's ways and having a happy relationship, husband and wife. But what we're seeing here is Jesus himself saying, don't you read Genesis? Now that's 4,000 years after Genesis was took place when God created a man and a woman and he said I've created a male and a female that they might multiply for my purpose ultimately and that is to fill this earth with people that love me and follow my ways here we are 2,000 years after Jesus so we're going to say well oh, yeah but the next 2,000 years oh man you've got no idea what happened to our bodies that's crazy Jesus says no understand Men marry women, and the two are united together as one. Now, the Apostle Paul was out in the Gentile world. He wasn't in Israel. He was out mixing around teaching people about Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible because the gospel was now going out to the Gentiles. God says, 
Israel have rejected me and killed my beloved son, Jesus Christ. So the gospel, the good news of salvation, went out to the Gentiles. Here's Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now just notice the chapter division, if you read your Bible regularly, if you stop at the end of chapter 5 and don't realise chapter 6 goes straight on, it's actually following the same story through. In chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the ecclesia, the Greek word church, and gave himself for it. Husbands love wives, right? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they'll become one flesh. Here's Paul talking to the people in Ephesus. Ephesus was a, a, a major city in Asia, the, the major city in Asia. And he's preaching to Gentile people that never knew about God until Paul had gone there and started spreading out the gospel news. He says, now look, regarding marriage, it's a husband and a wife. God said in the beginning, he made them one. So the message that's gone out to us Gentiles is exactly the same message that the Jews received. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. And also see the wife respects her husband. So it's husband and wife. Male and female together. Why? So that they can have children. Children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he quotes the, one of the Ten Commandments. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise. This is Paul saying, look, God intended a man and a woman to be united in marriage and have children and they teach children God's, the children God's ways and the children learn to honour mother and father. We go on. That it may be well with you that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are supposed to be sitting down and saying, listen, I want to talk to you about God and the amazing things that God has done and the hope that we've got through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So teach your parents and bring them up with the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what God intended, so that children will not be selfish, that is sinning, I will do what I like, but they'll become godly and say, God's, God's ways are right. They are right for a happy family life. So that's Paul to the Ephesians. When he wrote to the Romans, he paints a picture of what Rome, the Roman citizens were like without the knowledge of God. I'll just read through this slowly with you. For the wrath of God. You know, you can't just say God's a God of love. God is also a God of wrath. Look, a parent, you're a parent, a mother or a father, you love your children. But there's times when you have to get cross and say, that is wrong. You do it this way. So you, that doesn't mean you stop loving your children. You, you are correcting them because you love them and you want them to know what is right and do what is right. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. People that say, I don't want to do what God wants. And unrighteousness. I don't think God's laws are right of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's a contrast there. God's truth is set out and there's those that say, I don't want to do that. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God hath shown it unto them. The ways of God are evident in the creation about us as well as in the word of God which is absolutely provable and should not be doubted. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, this is the God we're dealing with, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And among the things that were made, God said, let us make a man in our image and our likeness. And he made them male and female. So he says, God's creation, people are without excuse. People can frivolously waste their time saying maybe we came from mon monkeys or something. Or they could sit down and say, if, I want to examine if the Bible's right. And if it's right, I'll believe what God says. People don't have an excuse in God's mind. He said, I've set this all out. For although they knew God, there was a time when people knew God, they didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts. So instead of being wise, they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So, as I said, Plato, sitting under a tree, as it were, thinking about what's happening, says, oh, I've worked out there's three gods in one. And that's 400 years before Christ, as I said, and 300 years before, another 300 years before the Trinity became a doctrine. So people became fools. They turned away from God, and he says, that, that is utter foolishness. What happened? Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchange the glory of the immortal God, God is from everlasting to everlasting, into images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Uh, here's a, a, a God of the, Hindu, of the Indian people. Here is Buddha, people all down, bowing to him. And here is another God that's been created by the Roman Catholic Church, the mother of God, Jesus, uh, Mary, and, and here's the Pope praying to Mary, who's actually dead, waiting the resurrection when Christ returns. But they've made a statue, just as these people made a statue. They made a statue, oh, let's make a statue, and I'll talk to that statue, and I'm sure up in heaven, Mary, as I said earlier, Christian religion today is a mixture of superstition, human philosophy, and, and just foolishness. But a few quotes are put together for it. There is no difference in all of that. It's ignorance. And Paul's writing to Rome, and this, of course, centres in Rome, uh, where the Pope has his residence. One of the Ten Commandments was, you shall not make for yourselves carved images, the likeness of anything in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath. So I, I don't know what that elephant kind of man type of thing is there, but uh, anyway, that's it. You see, God, Paul is very clear what's happening, but watch what happens next. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts, their own desires, fleshly desires of their heart, to impurity, to dishonouring their bodies. Notice that, their bodies among themselves. How? Because they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They don't want to follow God's truth. They worship and serve the creature, I am more important than God. I'm a creature. I've been created by God. The word creature means you've been created. And they're foolish enough to say, 
I will decide what's happening, but you're only created by a creator in heaven. So he goes on, for this reason, God gave them up to, dis to dishonorable passions. Women exchange the natural relationship for those that are contrary to nature. Women with women. God says, be fruitful and multiply. It needed a male and a female. And so while women are doing that, Paul goes on to say, and men likewise gave up natural relations. Notice he says there's natural relations and people doing things contrary to nature. That's not natural. He says that men gave up the natural relation with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. Very clear, isn't it? That's exactly what we read God said to Israel. You don't do that. But human nature, as it sinks down in the sewer of immorality, they think that's okay. And even some of them are Christian groups that say, oh, but God loves us. Oh, look, yeah, God, no, it's all okay. Here's Paul writing to Timothy. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. God's law was to stop people sinning, to say, hey, I've got to learn. God wants me to walk in holy and upright ways, not like this. So the law was for the unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, instead of honouring mother and father, strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and many other. By the way, we're not just speaking tonight about that. We're saying all these things are contrary to God's ways. All those ways are sin, sins of selfishness. I will do what I like, and it's quite wrong. It's not according to the glory of God. So the New Testament is quite clear on all this. Corinthians. This is very important, this quote. Paul's in Corinth now. Corinth is a major city at the Peloponnesian Peninsula. He writes this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? All unrighteousness precludes from the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's not the law, they shall not commit adultery, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let us understand, they're all sins. It's not about saying that is a worse sin than this sin. Sin is sin. And sin is transgression of God's law, which was designed to up uphold holiness and righteousness and happiness in the family. But notice this. And such were some of you. There were people in Corinth who, hearing the gospel, said, Ah, this God has got a much better way of life for us and a much better hope. The people that were drunkards just get drunk again and drunk again and drunk again. He says, But listen, you don't have to stay like that. There is a hope in the gospel that God is offering to you. Such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. There were people who said, ah, oh, now I realise what the Bible's teaching. I want to find out more about this God of the Bible 
who created the earth with a purpose, a purpose to have it inhabited by people that love and fear him. So when it talks about being washed, what's that mean? Here's two quotations here. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Their sins were washed away. And so some of the people in Corinth said, Ah, that was dreadful. We are washed. We are changing our way. We're going to follow the gospel. In Acts chapter 22, regarding Paul himself, they said to Paul, Why do you wait? Rise and be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on the name of Jesus Christ, okay? So it's not that a person that's involved in drunkenness has got no hope of eternal life. They have got a hope while they're alive to sit down and say, hey, I want to think this through. God has offered me forgiveness of my sins and a hope of eternal life in the kingdom on the earth because God wanted to inherit have the earth inhabited and the purpose is he's calling out people who lovingly fear him and he'll give them eternal life in this kingdom that's going to be set up upon the earth by the way we're reading straight on in corinthians here it was corinthians 6 we were reading before corinthians 7 just goes on each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband Husbands should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that is, uh, treat her respectfully as marriage requires, and likewise a wife to her husband. You see, the physical relationship of a male and a female is restricted to married couples. That's what God intended. So the wife doesn't have authority on her own body, but her husband, and likewise the husband doesn't have authority over the wife's body, but the wife. Husband and wife united together. So that's quite clearly the teaching that is just permeating the Bible. But some religions perverse this thing. Paul says to Timothy, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful lusts and they will forbid to marry. We've just seen that all the quotations in the Bible we've been looking at talk about marriage and along comes a church that says, oh no, our priests are not allowed to marry. You, you see, people pervert what the Bible says. So abstain from certain foods. So, uh, during the time of Lent, there's certain foods that have to be restricted and not eaten. Nonsense. Paul says that the, the, the days are going to come when people will depart from the faith. On the other hand, Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Cephas is the name for Peter. He says, Peter had a wife. There's this church over here that says, oh no, you can't marry. And the head of that church is supposed to be sitting with the keys of Peter. That's the Roman Catholic church. Paul says, well, Peter had a wife and he went around preaching with that. In Hebrews it says, let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marriage is a very important function of God's purpose. And we must understand that and understand why it is so. To bring up children to know and understand God. Here's this psalm we read tonight. It's a, it's a lovely picture. It's, um, you may have noticed this if you've driven around the Adelaide Hills where the olive trees are. And of course we've got vineyards here. 
people in the Middle East would have olive trees and vineyards, and they also had vines growing along the side of the house. I had a, an Italian foreman, and he was just pointing out the reason they grow the vine along the house on the north side here in Adelaide is in the summer months, it's got all its leaves and grapes hanging down and trellis beside the house, and it stopped the hot sun beating upon the wall of the house, and in wintertime, all the leaves had fallen, and the sun could shine through and keep the house warm. So here we see this same picture way back in the times of the psalm. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord. There's the key of it. A person that fears God. He says, I want to do what God has instructed me in the Bible. I want to walk in his ways. I want to do what's pleasing to God. For thou shalt eat the labour of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. So he says, a person that dedicates themselves to serving God, their life will be adequately provided for. Thy wife shall be like a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Your wife will have children like a fruitful vine. Thy children as olive plants around about the table. So there's the children. And here's a picture of, if you've ever seen olive trees, around the olive tree there's always the little shoots coming up of the next lot of olive trees. Behold, thus is the, shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. See, he fears the Lord. He says, I want to do what God wants. I'm not going to be selfish. I want to find out what God says in the Bible. I want to find out what married life is all about. What my role is. If you are married, not everybody gets married, we realise that. But if you're planning and going down that course, understand what it's for. He goes on to say, Yea, you'll see your children's children and peace upon Israel. A lovely little psalm that speaks about family life that God intended in Israel. A man, his wife and his children, happy around him like children around the table, are happy around mum and dad as uh, they discuss what's happened at school or whatever during the day and mum and dad are making uh, little lessons for them about what's going on. So in conclusion... This commandment, by the way, is the first commandment of all in the Bible. A man came to Jesus once and said, what is the first commandment? And Jesus said, the first commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He says that's number one. By the way, number two was you'll love your neighbour like yourself. You won't do anything to upset your neighbour. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. God's purpose was for families to be God-centred, looking forward to the glorious hope that God has offered of the forgiveness of sins and a place in the coming kingdom of God clothed with immortality to rejoice because you come to know and to love God and to follow in his ways. Following God's guidance for marriage is the basis of a truly happy marriage and family life. So we hope that's helped set out an answer to some of the unusual activities that are going on around the world at present and in our own environment to say, well, I want to get back to have a conscience to follow what God says and to live out that conscience, faithfully serving God and loving God.
for the love that he's shown us in knowing the way of salvation. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.